Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura, the wise men are Dion Ornstein and Mann, and they've written a jewel for Republicans, Democrats, and anyone worried about uh, the path of this nation uh, forward. Let's begin, uh, David, the discussion with the current news. I want to talk to EJ about uh, some of the platoons that we have here in a little bit. There you go. EJ on the uh, co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. EJ, great to speak with you once again. Uh, let me start by asking Great to about be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start by asking you about Senator Bob Corker announcing yesterday he's not going to seek another term in office. It strikes me from watching this and from my time in Washington D.C. that nothing brings about bipartisanship or bipartisan sentiment more than the retirement of a colleague, be he on the same side of the aisle or another. We certainly saw that yesterday. The outpouring of support and praise for the outgoing senator from from Tennessee. What's the the, the status of? Do you see green shoots of any bipartisanship on Capitol Hill today? Yeah, I think all politicians should announce their retirement, tape all of the tributes, uh, say they've changed their mind and use those tributes in their reelection campaign. <laughs> I mean, it's really stunning the way that uh, the way that happens. At the moment, it's very hard to see uh, any green shoots of bipartisanship. You just saw this health care bill go down, as in my view, it should have, um, because there was no Democratic support for repealing Obamacare. They did actually have side by side with that a negotiation between Lamar Alexander, a Republican, and Patty Murray, a Democrat, on finding ways to fix some of the problems in Obamacare. That could actually get bipartisan support, but the leadership, the Republican leadership, killed that because they wanted to get their Obamacare bill. We'll see what happens mm. with that. Uh, you've been talking about uh, tax reform. I mean, if this tax reform is focused primarily on cutting the top rate for the wealthy, um, it's not going to get a lot of bipartisan support. Um, And, you know, corporate tax reform would be quite popular if it were about making the corporate tax more efficient. There are companies that pay near zero, others near the top rate. That doesn't seem to make sense. Um, But it looks like it may, again, just be a great big cut. Uh So I don't see a lot of openings there right now. And this primary result uh, down in Alabama, um, where Roy Moore beat the candidate of both Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, although Donald Trump is trying to pretend he didn't really do what he did, um, is only going to tell Republicans the farther right you go, the better. I'm glad that you bring that up because you you and uh, Norm Ornstein and and, uh, Thomas Mann focus here on on this new brand of populism that Donald Trump has espoused. Donald Trump, who... uh, owns a skyscraper just around the corner from here, was down in Alabama over these last couple of weeks, uh, uh, fulminating uh, in favor of, of the gentleman who lost last night. Talk a bit about this, how successfully, how, how, how candidate Trump was able to endear himself and become uh, someone who, who folks in Alabama, folks uh, in many parts of the country outside of New York City were, were keen to support. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's um, I I always think it is important to point out that Trump lost the popular vote by two point nine million. That's not sour grapes. That's just to say, if you're going to say where the country is, 
uh, you got to look at that popular vote. And when you look at Alabama, this is a state that if Democrats ever actually won Alabama in a presidential election, they're probably winning Mississippi and every other uh-huh. state uh, in the union. This is a very, very conservative state. But I think Trump, on the one hand, clearly appealed to feelings around race. You saw that again with his attack on the NFL players and immigration. But it was in a context of economic troubles in a lot of parts of the country. I think one of the biggest problems we face is a great disconnect between the economies of the metro areas and the economies of smaller industrial places like my hometown of Fall River Massachusetts, well, that's, places like Erie, Pennsylvania, well, and we got to deal with that as a country. EJ, that's where I wanted to go, to Fall River and Portsmouth Abbey. There's no E.J. Dion book unless you speak of not only the Roman Catholic faith, but religion in America. You talk about, I know you interned for Edmund Burke a few years ago. Uh, the little balloon <laughs> we, we belong to in uh, society. How do the Democrats win by bringing religion into their debate? Some Republicans seem to have done better with this uh, recently. Do the Democrats need to adjust towards a religion you've made a career writing of? Well, you know, one of the things in the campaign that I think Hillary Clinton could have done more of is talking about her Methodist faith and how important that was to the way she thinks about politics. I think most people don't have any idea of how important that is to her. And I think that sends a signal to a lot of people uh, who aren't necessarily or, you know, automatic Democratic voters, mm-hmm. um, that this is a more complicated person who reflects uh, on these matters. We have a lot to say on that. And, you know, you do have uh, right now um, some religious movements that really look like the old civil rights Christianity, people like the Reverend Bill Barber down in North Carolina, who are linking um, religious values to fights uh, for justice. Um, and, you know, I think the key thing is just not for liberals and Democrats not to look bigoted against religious people. Mm. Um, and most of them aren't. But there are sometimes signals uh, that they send that I think are harmful uh, to the cause of liberalism right. in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And when you got Pope Francis, mm-hmm. liberals have a lot to talk about. Yeah. E.J., great, great to speak with you as always. Thank you very much yeah. for the time here on radio and television as well. That's E.J. Dion, co-author of One Nation After Trump, a co-author with Norman Ornstein of AEI, Thomas Mann of the Brookings Institution uh, as well. And what resonates with me is I've begun to dive into Hillary Clinton's uh, autobiography, Tom, and she does write about religion in a way she didn't seem to feel comfortable talking about on the campaign trail. So an interesting point there from uh, E.J. Dion, also of the Brookings Institution, Georgetown University uh, as well. Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura and Tom Keen here in New York, coast to coast and worldwide. This is Bloomberg. David, this was an important interview yesterday. This is the most important interview of the day after what we witnessed yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very pleased to welcome the program. Senator Pat Toomey, someone you associate very closely with fiscal conservatism for a long time, the head of Club for Growth, of course, represented the Lehigh Valley, Allentown, Bethlehem, uh, and the like in Congress, Pennsylvania's 15th congressional district uh, for many years. Now, the junior senator uh, from Pennsylvania joins us now on our phone lines. So much to talk about with you, Senator. Let me start with tax reform. Gary Cohn, the president's economic advisor, has described to Bloomberg what this plan is going to be like. Uh, He said it's going to be a skeleton, and it's going to be up to the White House and Congress to add flesh to that. 
Uh, you're going to get this outline today. What are you looking for? And help us understand what the process is going to be like when you get the broad strokes of this plan. Sure. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, there will be there'll be no surprises for those of us who are uh, members of the Senate Finance Committee because we've been meeting with and consulting with the Treasury Secretary Gary Cohn, the leaders of the the House Tax Writing Committee, and uh, the elected leadership there uh, for many months now. Tremendous progress has been done. Um, what I'm looking for is a pro-growth supply-side tax reform that is going to create incentives to expand American production, give us the kind of uh, acceleration and economic growth we've been waiting for. And I'm, I'm, I'm really quite optimistic. I think we've got a really good shot at getting this done. Uh, it will certainly include lower taxes for middle-class families, mm -hmm. uh, working-class families. It will um, eliminate, I hope, the, um, the just the massive disadvantage that American business has with respect to uh, foreign competitors. Um, so um, I'm excited about it. We'll um, we'll start discussing the details, and then the committees of jurisdiction. That's the Finance Committee in the Senate, the Ways and Means Committee in the House. We'll begin actually writing the legislative language and making the detailed yeah. decisions that have to be fleshed out. Uh, Senator Toomey, let me ask you what you've learned from the debate, the debates uh, over health care over these last few months. The president tweeting, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, he does not think that health care uh, is dead. You're not going to get it through on, on reconciliation, but there's still going to be uh, an effort to get changes to health care uh, made. How eager are you to move on from this? Uh, you've had votes. You've had votes pulled. Uh, is it time to move on from health care to focus on tax reform exclusively? <clears throat> well... It is time to make tax reform the top priority and to do what it takes to get this done this year. Having said that, there are really talented members of uh, the Republican conference who are going to continue to work on getting to a consensus on, on health care because all the problems with Obamacare didn't go away just because we had a failed vote. Uh, so those problems are real. The individual exchange markets, I would argue, are in a downward spiral. Uh, <clears throat> costs are, are accelerating, choices are dropping, and so we still have to address this. But right now, we've got to move on and get tax reform done. Senator, I would assume the phone is ringing off the hook with scared Republicans after what we witnessed yesterday. Your 15th congressional uh, district spans from Allentown down to the edge of Harrisburg. And by everyone's consensus, it's the close, most closely contested uh, district in the country. What are the lessons you've learned by election after election after election, enjoying winning by 49-47 or whatever the number is a given year? What are the lessons you've learned that Jeff Flake of Arizona and others can learn so that they don't become Senator Corker? Well, look, I, I don't know that I'm in a position to uh, uh, to teach those guys. They, they've uh, run a lot of races. They've they've been successful in their states. Every state is different. Fair. Uh, my state, my state's a big, complicated state. Uh, their states are, are, are just different. So um, very talented guys. Uh, I always believe that the most important thing uh, for a candidate to do is to be, as, to be very honest and candid and transparent. Voters don't expect that, you're, that they're going to agree with you on everything. And it is not possible to get much, many people at all that will agree with you on everything. But if they believe that you care about the people you represent and you're going to be straightforward and honest with people, then they're willing to tolerate differences of opinion. 
We heard the announcement yesterday. Bob Corker, as Tom mentioned, is going to be stepping down. He's not going to seek re-election uh, in 2018. As I recall, right. when you were in the, the House, uh, you said you were going to stick to term limits imposed by yourself. You weren't going to run after three terms. I believe that's how many there, there were. That's right. Uh, help us understand the, the role of institutional memory in light of all of that uh, in Congress. Where, what role should that play? How much do you need new blood? Do you need change uh, in Washington? And are we seeing here, on the other side of that coin, a deficit of, of knowledge of the way the institutions work? Well, you know that that's that's a great debate that uh, that surrounds the whole term limits idea. Um, let me just say about Bob Corker, we're going to miss Bob Corker, but not for a while, right? He's going to be with us for over a year, and he's going to continue to contribute uh, so much to the Republican conference and to the United States Senate as he has. And then we'll miss him when he when he uh, is in his retirement. I personally think that it is good to have turnover in Congress. I, I think one of the the problems we have is. Uh, too many people in Washington have never done anything in their life other than politics, and they may have gotten quite good at winning elections, but we are better served as a republic, I think, right. by people who have uh, expertise in something. It's, I love it when a medical doctor comes in, when a, uh, an Army veteran comes in, when a farmer comes in. Because oh, stop. Then Come I, on. I, you, ran, you ran Rookie's <laughs> Restaurant in Allentown. What did yeah. you learn picking dimes off the floor in Rookie's Restaurant in Allentown? Well, that you, you know, can you help can the be, prima donnas with in Washington. You can denigrate a, a person for ha- operating a small business if you like, but when you actually start a business from scratch right. and you put all of the savings you've been able to scrape together into that investment and you're working 80 hours a week, and yeah, sometimes that's picking up the dimes and sweeping the floor, right. and it's ske- scheduling and it's hiring and it's all the other things, you learn an awful lot about what the people who create jobs in America have to contend with. And so it is actually a very helpful uh, learning exercise that informs okay. your judgment when you're looking at regulations and tax policy and the other things that affect small business. And David, I'm sorry, it's a perfect segue to the Big Six and Pat Toomey going up to Ben's Chili Bowl to really understand how you how you make tax reform work. Well, there's one on 8th Street now, so there's one closer to the, oh, the Capitol Complex, which that. is a well. good thing, I'm sure, for Senator Toomey. Let me just get a sense from you of what role you want the White House to play here when it comes to tax reform going forward. I've spoken with Chairman Brady here uh, in New York when he's come up to talk about tax reform. And uh, it's clear that he and his staff, uh, people who have been associated with the big six, have been working very hard on the policy here over these many uh, months. Do you want the White House to take a leadership role? Or are you content for this now to be in Congress's court going forward? I, I think it should continue to be a collaborative process. I mean, Congress is going to write this. But look, there's there's issues that are complicated. And, uh, uh, you know, if, I think we should trim the ability for uh, large businesses to deduct interest expenses, for instance. Well, how exactly should we do that? Is it just perspective or is it the entire balance sheet? Should we follow the model that some OECD countries have, have taken and uh, limit the interest deducted to mm. a percentage? percentage of EBITDA. There's lots of ways to do it. And there's a lot of expertise in the administration at Treasury and in other places. So so this should be a collaborative process in my mind. Uh, we're going to hold the pen going forward. There's a great outline that's coming out in, I guess, a few hours. Yep. And, and so with all the collaboration we've had so far, we're starting from a very good place. And uh, I, that's, I feel good about it. What do you say to somebody who hears you talking about this, hears you talking about the merits of that debate, the intellectual exercise of figuring out what might work and what might not, who wonders why this didn't start sooner? We've had the White House. We've had Congress working on this for some time. Shouldn't a lot of this stuff been decided by this point? 
No, well, I don't think so. This this started uh, actually prior to the president's being sworn in. Uh, I've been meeting with the Treasury Secretary uh, Stephen Mnuchin and Gary Cohn and my colleagues since January, and it takes a while to you know to develop something that is as complicated and important as the entire tax code. And and this is very sweeping reform we're talking about. The whole individual side, the whole corporate side, the pass-through, you know, businesses that are organized as pass-throughs, that, that's an awful lot. I, if we get this all done and signed into law by the end of this year, uh, the first year of this administration, that'll be a huge success. Yeah. Senator, thank you so much. Pat Toomey from Straustown, Pennsylvania, Allentown, on down to uh, Harrisburg within his congressional tour of duty, and now representing all of Pennsylvania. Pat Toomey, uh, as the Republicans move forward off of a Tuesday meltdown, I guess is one way to put it. Futures up five, Dow Futures up 21. On economics, finance, investment, on politics, this is Bloomberg. David, what did we learn from Mr. Toomey? What was the, what was the summary you took away? You know, I, I, it's a contract to get to there in that last question. Uh, it sounds like this debate is just beginning. So yeah. I don't think that we're going to get a whole lot of detail. We're going to get these broad strokes that Bloomberg's reporting right now. But uh, it sounds like there's still right. a lot to be hammered out. And the White House, to my mind at least, content to have right. Congress be the forum for that uh, to happen over these next few months. Should we stay in Pennsylvania? Sure. I think we should. No, sure. He has a, a, a degree in classics at the University of Pennsylvania. That would be classic football games, you know, like Eagles, Steelers, and the rest of it. No, I'm kidding. But uh, Bob Michelle with us with J.P. Morgan. Uh, Well, how do you get ready for finance taking a classics major at Pennsylvania at Penn? It's the perfect discipline. You study years of Latin, and you have to go through lines and lines of text, and all the verbs come at the end. So it's a puzzle you have to unravel. Sounds like, like the Fed, doesn't it? When did you decide to go into finance? Was this like the clouds parted and Larry Summers' uh, father, Professor Summers, walked in the room and said, you, finance? He learned great. When did, when did you decide to clip coupons? Well, in Penn, there is this place called Wharton, uh-huh. which encompasses all. Small so, startup school. So, yes. college walk, so yes. even <laughs> though you could study classics, Latin and Greek, classical studies, you can't escape you what goes on in finance. You mentioned the similarity here to uh, translating what the Fed uh, has to say, and there's no Robert Fagels who can help us here with, with this. When you listen to uh, Janet Yellen speaking yesterday, what did you hear uh, from her? She she got a standing ovation, some commentators suggesting it was a sign of a valedictory, perhaps. Uh, did you hear something different from the Fed chair yesterday? What I heard her say is she's taking the punch bowl away, that we've lived with unconventional tools for a very long period of time, that There are market distortions that are occurring. She's talked about rich equity prices and asset prices in the past. And we're a long way away from anything that looks normal. And it's not just one path. It's not just raising rates or running down the balance sheet. It's both of those things. I think she believes she's not going to be reappointed. So let's get started on that path to normalization before she exits. You go to the heart of it, the Venn diagram of the overlap of interest rate dynamics with balance sheet dynamics. Do you and your team at J.P. Morgan have a belief that we can get to where we want to be with stability, with stable glide paths, or do you just assume we're going to see jump conditions to be polite about it? 
initially we think there's a glide path because interestingly enough, while the Fed will begin running down its balance sheet in October, actually the ECB and the Bank of Japan are still printing money. So she's using them to cushion to our, cover almost, our yeah. normalization. Exactly. So they're, they're a big cushion out there. This time next year, the aggregate global central bank balance sheet goes from expansion to contraction. And rates should be close to another 100 basis points higher in the U.S. I think that's where you're going to see the higher volatility or the jump dislocations that you mentioned. Bob, you're right that these next 12 months are going to be challenging. Uh, how do you navigate the, the challenges that are going to come up here? Uh, the Fed has, by all accounts, well telegraphed what it intends to do here. What are the challenges going to be, and how do you do your best to, uh, to surmount them? Well, I, I think the first thing is to accept that the composition of the Fed is going to change. So the new Fed chair that could come in um, could decide, why normalize the balance sheet? It's done no harm, $4.5 trillion. The banking system will grow into that in 20 years or so. So let's just leave it where it is. Um, so I think you have to be flexible. We, we have the paths laid out. We have the signposts. We know what we're watching from asset prices, from normalization. We know historically what looks normal for the Fed and for the bond markets. And then we'll try to marry in what the Fed is doing, the composition of the Fed, and then if anything comes out of the administration on the fiscal side. Are, how are geopolitical risks factoring into your thesis at this point? Um, we talked about North Korea a little bit earlier uh, with uh, with Howard Ward, and, and I, I wonder if, if that's weighing on the decisions that you're making at this point or if it's still just noise uh, on the periphery. It's it's hard to say that the, the potential for, for – a nuclear event is just noise on the side, but it is. When you look at the, the markets, you look at the fact that the rallies continue, that <clears throat> volatility stays low. The, the bigger picture is the markets are drowning in cash, and it is this combination mm. of QE, and it is savings, and I think that's what concerns right. Yellen the most. And Bob Michael, J.P. Morgan Asset Management with us. Always good to have him with us with some theory available for institution and retail investors as well. What will real rates do? Uh, we, we are uh, a fail, like everyone else in the media, we're nominal, nominal, headline rate, et cetera. The 10-year yield folks, 2.28%. Subtract out inflation. And what is the real rate, the inflation-adjusted rate on that 10-year? What's the path of the real rate? given Fed dynamics? It's got to be higher. And and that's an excellent point to go back to, to real yields. I'm going to step out and talk about the high yield market for a second. No one likes the high yield market because you're right. You look at the nominal yield, 5.5%. It doesn't feel like that's high yield to right. us. When you look at the credit spread, it's 3 and 5 eighths percent. That's actually pretty good for an environment where year-over-year year defaults are 1.2%. And by the way, end of cycle, credit spreads come into about 2.5%. So there's room there. It's all a real yield story. That's the impact the central banks have done. That's the <clears throat> intention but of QE. The way it works, Bob, whether, frankly, I, I would suggest institutions as well, is you get the monthly statement on your fixed income account, your bond account, your bill account, and one month you're down a little bit and then you know, yield up price down a second month. We haven't enjoyed a bond bear market like years. Am I right? No, you're right. <clears throat> hey, 
Are, I'm are ready you, for it. <laughs> I, I, I've been in this for 37 years. I've only known a bull okay. market. Are you predicting a bond bear market where price goes down enough to upset savers? Not this year. Again, I think if we get into next year and the Fed continues to wind down its balance sheet, I think the spring of next year, Mm -hmm. that's when you're going to see the bear market take hold. So do I believe that the 36-year downtrend in interest rates has ended? Yeah, I think we put in the low earlier this year. And the great moderation. Yeah, Yeah. and I I think this this path to normalization – is all about yeah. um, a bear market, and and that's yeah. what will take yields. To David, normal. you or me? Should we ask him about Bitcoin? You go ahead. No, I'll let you. I want you <laughs> yeah, to get the ask. emails. I want go you to on. get the email. <laughs> you can ask. <laughs> well, Mr. Diamond spoke up about Bitcoin. How did that reverberate through the fixed income desk? I mean, I understand there's other parts of J.P. Morgan that <laughs> are working in crypto this and crypto that, but uh, have you done a bit a Bitcoin essay yet? So. I'm going to tell you an interesting story. I was in London when he made those comments. Yeah. I was actually doing an interview with another press entity. And the guy looked <laughs> at me is there another? And, and said, <laughs> and he said, you know, it's an inter- the most interesting thing about Bitcoin is it's all the counterparty risk. In fact, in 2010, I bought some Bitcoins. I went to sell them later and they had disappeared. And they're, I'm like, how many did you buy? 10,000. Wow. And I said, there there was a st- and that was probably like 20 bucks back then there was a news story a few days earlier that the first use of bitcoins was to purchase two pizzas for $10,000 in 2010 which is when this guy bought his they're worth 40 million dollars i told him somebody owes you 40 million dollars good luck collecting it there you go Oh, Michael, thank you very much. <laughs> Switch you up Bitcoin for that finance. Yes. Michael Barr was taking you're, notes. You're not that. a holder of it. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, no I have should, never. I, I, I did there. not go to the Matthew Miller School of Bitcoin Charm. Yeah, he was in early. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. He, well, buying pizzas. And I, I'm trying to stay out of it, but thank you to Joe Weisenthal. <laughs> And Michael McKee for making a smart. Can we watch that video? Is it, it still exists? I, I, Mr. We'll Zuckerberg, I believe, tried to I'll take it, it down. Okay. <laughs> Bob Michael, thank you so much. He is with J.P. Morgan on fixed income a little bit there on cryptocurrencies. <music> Lindsay Bell has been acute for CFRA writing terse notes, rationalizing being in the market. Lindsay, let's start with what people are doing. Uh, You know, you hold court at CFRA and all of the Standard & Poor's products. What are people actually doing with their money right now? Well, at CFRA, we like to, um, you know, slice and dice the S&P 500 in a couple different ways. I personally focus on a lot of the sectors and industries, but oftentimes I also look at the different factors or different styles of investing. And more recently, uh, I've been keeping my eye on growth versus value, and growth continues to win this year um, and is outpacing value. Because that's, all- what's, but, but because that's what people are doing with their money. They're putting their money in their growth stocks, aren't they? Exactly, because of given the low economic growth rate that we're seeing, the com- uncertainty uh, that surrounds the Fed uh, political policy here in the U.S. and abroad, and the geopolitical tensions that are out there, um, investors feel that they can really just count on the growth sectors primarily. 
I heard uh, Tom talking with uh, Howard Ward a little earlier on TV about Apple. Let's talk about technology, uh, if we could. When you look at this on a sector-by-sector basis, what do you see when you look at technology? Well, technology has been a clear outperformer um, this year, especially, and it's going to do very well again once we get third-quarter earnings results here in a couple weeks. It's going to have the second-highest growth of 10.3% on an earnings basis, that's after energy, but energy is a special case, uh, coming off a very low bar there. Um, but we heard from Micron Technology last night. It was a very good report. Pricing still remains stable there. Um, the Apple iPhone was a little bit, you know, a disappointment for some people. But this is a sector that's going to continue to lead for um, the remainder of the year, um, especially as we get into the cyclical six, as my colleague Sam Stovall likes to focus on when we get into the November through um, April period. Uh, this sector usually outperforms. Yeah, I, I look at this, and, and, you know, the moonshot that is growth, what is the underlying why of our present growthiness? Is it desire to get anything at the top line? Is it something down the income statement, or is it just as a blunt instrument as use of cash? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just investors looking for um, areas to make money. Uh, The value sectors have not done as well, and that's your financials, your industrials, because they rely on economic growth, which we haven't seen. So, and like I've said earlier, given the uncertainty that remains in the market, this is, um, for a lot of investors, just a key area, um, to an easy way to get growth and mm. to get um, exposure to and an better appreciation in the market. How much are you, you worried about uh, geopolitical risk at this point? I'm asking everybody, asking everybody this, this question, but uh, how much is it weighing on, on, on your sense of what the, market, what the market's doing? Well, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you saw over the weekend, any time there's escalation with North Korea, the market pulls back initially but just shrugs it off. And I think part of that's because um, equities, you know, I'm speaking from an equities perspective, um, really it is the best house on the block right now. You still have an accommodate, accommodative Fed, easy monetary policy across the globe, um, making stocks the most attractive investment, especially with the yield on the S&P 500 at 2%. Um, it's, you know, it's a better return than you can find on a lot of other instruments right now. And when, where do the banks fit in in terms of this? I mean, if they're a value proposition, <coughs> excuse me, if they're a value proposition, do they finally turn it on as Chair Yellen normalizes? Yes, they would be key beneficiaries of a normalization process. And um, that you certainly see them pop every time there's, there's talk of higher interest rates. Um, we'll see what they have to say. I don't think this third quarter is going to be a good one for them. You already have a handful of the larger banks out there um, downplaying what their trading mm-hmm. businesses are going to be like. The low volatility environment is not good for them. Um, I think that they, they're seeing a slowdown even in investment banking, uh, given the uncertain uh, political environment that we're currently operating in. I, I just find all of this uh, fascinating. We've got uh, just a lot, lot to talk about uh, here as well. And the echo, we've got to get you back on again soon, Lindsay Bell. There's just too much to talk about in the sectors uh, as well. Growth and value. I'm going to put a chart out. You'll see it first on Bloomberg at Radio. We'll do that on social and Twitter uh, here in a moment. David, this is a huge issue. 
the, yeah. the growth value conundrum. You can go back 20 years and it hasn't been like this in ages. And she, ages. Po- she points to the Sharp Ratio. That's something you and I have talked about uh, yeah. as well. I'm a huge, huge supporter of the Sharp Ratio because it doesn't include beta. Uh-huh. I don't like beta analysis. And Sharp is one of the few risk-reward or reward-risk ratios that excludes beta. And that's a good thing. It's like with Michael Barr. We want a beta-free news as well. Why don't you bring in our lucky esteemed guest, David Girl? Chad Thomas is killing it in Berlin. He gets to go to the beer pubs. They have craft <laughs> beers like Beer Combinat Kreuzberg, BKK. Yikes. Is one of them. Uh, and he also has to keep Matt Miller in line, which is no easy task. Yes, Great true. to have you with us on the show here on this news, Chad. Um, that uh, Wolfgang Schreiber would be leaving the, the finance ministry to uh, to become the president of the Bundestag. Let's start first with what that role is. We're familiar uh, with what the chancellor does in, in Germany. I'd venture to say fewer of us are familiar with what the president of the Bundestag does. Explain the importance of this role. Yeah, well, the role is very similar to the Speaker of the House in the U.S. The Bundestag president is responsible essentially for the the running of the Bundestag. The, the chancellor, of course, often isn't even at the Bundestag when they're in session because she is traveling around the world, meeting with world leaders uh, out and about in Germany. So the role is really important because it's the person who sort of gets the business done in the Bundestag. What's the relationship been like between uh, Mr. Schäuble and uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, and uh, how much uncertainty was there surrounding his position, him continuing as finance minister, uh, after the results of that election Sunday night were tabulated? Well, I think you could say that they that the two of them have a bit of a love hate relationship uh-huh. with one with one another. They de- there's a definite rivalry that plays out between them, but they also realize that they both need one another. Uh, Wolfgang Schäuble mm-hmm. is incredibly popular in Germany. Chancellor Merkel leans on him to be sort of the voice of sort of the fiscal conservatism within the party, so she knows that she right. needs him. On the other hand, he's a bit of a rival to her. But is this part of a shift? off of what the AFD did, the far-right party did in Dresden and other geographies. Can you link the two together? Uh, You absolutely are right, Tom. You can link them. And there was a real discussion after the election about the importance of the person running the Bundestag in part because of the AFD getting into the Bundestag, right? And and there's a, a concern about what that will mean for the operations of, of this, you know, important parliament. And so they yeah. wanted someone who had a lot of experience and, and could really yeah. hopefully, you know, work to keep them in line. Who replaces uh, Schrabler as finance minister? Matt Miller? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure he'd raise his hand. Um, that, that, that's the, that's the real question here. And, and, and this in, part potentially buys Chancellor Merkel some options because let's not forget she she's trying to put together a coalition. She's looking at this moment at a coalition that will include two other parties. It's a coalition that they've never done at the national level before. And now if she's able to get Wolfgang Schäuble over into the, the Bundestag as the president, that allows her to potentially offer this plum post to one of the potential coalition partners. And and, and the real question then, who gets it, will tell us what direction they want to go with fiscal policy. If it's the Free Democrats, it's going to be very conservative and, and remain sort of in the Schäuble line or even be a bit tougher. But if it's the 
Greens who end up with the finance ministry, then there could be a potential loosening of fiscal policy. So at this point, it really depends on which direction she goes in terms of who she offers it to. Mm. You mentioned the coalition building process. What's the, the, the best estimate here of how long that's, that's going to take, how uneasy it's going to be for, for the chancellor to align her party to some of these others? Well, the last time around, it took until just before Christmas uh-huh. to get together the coalition. And that was when it was a grand coalition between her party and the Social Democrats. Now you're talking about trying to put together three parties, her, her party plus two yeah. others. And actually, her party has a sister party. So there's four of them uh, joining these uh, discussions. So everyone thinks that the likelihood of it being done before the end of, of December is, is really very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, Chad Thomas with us, giving us fabulous perspective from Berlin, our bureau chief uh, there. Uh, Chad, it's 120 miles drive from Berlin directly south to Dresden, over near the Czech Republic, over near Poland. But what is the cultural distance between oh-so-hip Berlin and a city like Dresden? Well, you know, many a city like Dresden and many of these these Eastern German cities, they feel like the people who were left behind, and that's why you have a, a German state like Saxony, uh, where the the AfD they were the biggest party. They feel that they have no voice or they're not heard. And so they've turned to the AFD out of protest. And, and a really interesting side factoid here is that this deal that happened today between uh, Siemens and Alstom, uh, where these two train maker or they link their train units together, right. this could play out again in Eastern Germany because Bombardier, which was uh, considered at one point to be the alternative option for, for Siemens, Bombardier has a lot of factories in Eastern Germany. And now there people are calling to question what is going to happen with these these factories yeah. if the Alstom Siemens okay. tie-up uh, happens. So. I, mean, I mean, David, help me here, but I would suggest that the sum total knowledge of Americans is the Frankfurt Airport. Maybe they've been to the ECB once. They go to Hamburg once in their life. They go to Berlin if they're hip and, you know, you know hipsters like David Gurr and all that. <laughs> don't don't but, forget Oktoberfest. Don't yeah, forget. and Oktoberfest. <laughs> they go to Munich, you know, if they need an insurance policy. Uh-huh. Away from the stereotypes we have of Germany, what is that gap, and can the Bundestag and Chancellor Merkel begin to heal this tangible gap we see as a far-right party enters the Bundestag? That is that is really the $100 million question here. On the one hand, you have a the one side of Germany where where the, you have a lot of economic success. Everything's going quite well on the surface. But there are there's a portion of the population who feels left behind by the globalization that has taken place. Uh, Germany Germany is an export nation. They've, uh, you know, done very well uh, under the system that we have. But there are those in particular in the East who feel that they are – They've been left behind by this. And it's it's a phenomenon, of course, we're seeing play out in other countries as well. Well, Chad, thank you so much. Chad Thomas uh, with us out of Berlin. This is one of the great values of the Bloomberg platform is, you know, with the news, David, we can just dial away 900 perspective. Yeah. You've interviewed Mr. Schäuble, haven't you? I I believe I did once. But no, we've had many other people that have interviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Uh, Matt Miller. uh, Chief, Chief among them, for sure. I have. Uh, anyway, the big news today, Wolfgang Schäuble said to be ready to leave his post at the finance ministry, yeah. something we so closely associate with him to lead the Bundestag. And as we heard there from uh, Chad Thomas, a pivotal role uh, in German yeah. politics.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.